Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. It is episode 42 of The Blind Side podcast. So does that mean that this podcast contains the answer to life, the universe and everything? Sadly, no. But it is a travelling-focused blind side today. Up ahead on the podcast, I'm going to be speaking with Chris Danielson from the National Federation of the Blind. And we'll be talking about a lawsuit that has been filed. This could potentially be a class-action lawsuit against Greyhound for the alleged inaccessibility of their website and app. And we'd certainly be keen to hear from you if you've had experience with trying to work the Greyhound website and app. And then, staying on a travelling theme, I'll be speaking once again with Judy Dixon, a prolific author in our community and a contributor to our community in so many other respects. Today we're going to be talking with her about her latest book that's been published by National Braille Press. It's called Go Where You Wanna Go, and it's looking at GPS technology on the iPhone. And there are one or two apps that she's introduced me to that I wasn't aware of before. So that's coming up in the second half of the podcast. And just a program note about a kappa at the Mosins, our weekly global call-in show on Mushroom FM. It's a bit different this week it's an open forum so if you want to call in and say hi and raise an issue of interest to you you're welcome to do that the reason why we're doing that is that we are changing technologies this week we're making the big leap and we'll see how it works out if it doesn't we'll switch back again but we're going to be using zoom cloud meetings for a couple at the mosins on mushroom fm from now on that's the intention anyway And so the idea is that you'll be able to choose the link right from the webpage, mushroomfm.com slash kappa, and join the conversation using the Zoom Cloud Meetings client. You will have heard us talking about this a couple of episodes ago. You can also still call into the podcast, and we've made that even easier if you want to use the phone right from the website, because now what happens is that you just choose the link for the phone number for your country, it dials the number and enters the PIN, and connect you to the call. So if you do have a smartphone, then be sure to visit the Kappa at the Mosins page from your smartphone. You'll be able to double tap the link in question for your country if you don't want to use Zoom and connect right away. So way simplified. But of course, Zoom is going to give you the best audio quality and it allows you to call in with minimal hassle from your PC or Mac using a microphone or headset. So for all the details and to see the shiny new web page for the show, Head on over to mushroomfm.com slash kappa, that's mushroomfm.com slash C-U-P-P-A, and join us live for A Kappa at the Mosins at 9pm Eastern Time on a Thursday night. You can check the Mushroom FM schedule to find out when that is in your time zone. Do fiddles make you want to dance? Do bagpipes make you want to cry? Does the sound of the harp carry you away to unknown shores and distant times? If any of the above are true, you might just be a Celtic music fan. Hi, I'm Sarah Hillis, and I wanted to let the Celtic music fans out there know that I do a Celtic music show right here on Mushroom FM. Yes, every Sunday night at 8pm Eastern, I present Come by the Hills, a show featuring three hours of the best in Celtic music from around the world. I've got traditional songs, songs inspired by tradition, and everything in between. I've got cool features, themes... And a whole lot of fun. So if you're in the mood for Celtic music on a Sunday night, then join me for Come by the Hills. The show is replayed on Friday morning at 4am Eastern, 9am in the UK and Ireland, right here on the home of the fun guys, Mushroom FM. 
And now, stories making news in the blind community on The Blind Side. When I was a kid growing up, we would sometimes hear Bob Kingsley and even before that, Don Bowman doing the American Country Countdown. I used to enjoy listening to that or those country tunes and it was amazing how many country tunes mentioned Greyhound. And I had this kind of romantic idea of one day going to America and riding on a Greyhound while I have done it. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, didn't, it didn't really live up to all the expectations, I have to say, that I had from the song. Unfortunately, it may be difficult to book a Greyhound fare if you're a blind person. The National Federation of the Blind is getting behind a lawsuit which alleges that Greyhound's website and apps are inaccessible to blind people. And what's worse... Greyhound are charging a convenience fee if you want to book using the phone, even though some blind people are having issues using the website. So to tell me more about this, I'm joined by a spokesman for the National Federation of the Blind, Chris Danielson. Chris, it's always good to have you on the blind side. Thanks for joining us again. Always good to be able to talk to you as well, Jonathan, and thanks for having us. Let's talk about how this got started. How did you get to where you are right now with this lawsuit just filed against Greyhound? Well, for a while now, the National Federation of the Blind has been hearing from blind people, including the individuals who have actually put their names on this lawsuit. Uh, one of them is Michael Hingson, uh, whom your listeners may know of. He, he's, of course, the author of, of, of a book about his experience uh, with his guide dog at the World Trade Center on 9-11. And uh, there are some other folks, uh, all Californians. We've filed the lawsuit in California, and they all are participating in the suit. And they're participating because they were among many people who reported to us that they were unable to use either Greyhound's website or its app either the iOS or the Android app. And we are specifically including allegations about the mobile apps in this lawsuit. That's kind of a bold approach that we're taking here, and hopefully it, it bears some good results. And in either of these cases, whether they were using the website or the app, these individuals were not able to successfully book their trip that they wanted to take, or, or in some cases it was multiple trips, uh, because some of them, particularly uh, Mr. Hingson, travel quite a lot because he's a speaker. That's how he makes his living, and occasionally he needs to use Greyhound. So they were unable to do that, and which is always annoying and upsetting if you're a blind person uh, when you can't uh, do something that you should be able to do uh, and should be relatively straightforward from an accessibility standpoint. I mean, there are plenty of websites and apps that we can use to to book travel. But then these individuals also had another experience, which is that they actually called Greyhound to make their reservation the old-fashioned way because they could not do so using the modern way with a website or an app. And they were then charged a convenience fee for booking over the telephone. Uh, that's convenient for Greyhound, not convenient for the users, apparently. Even though they explained that the reason that they were calling was because they were unable to access the website or the app with their screen reader technology. 
So they were discriminated against and then had to pay for the privilege of being discriminated against. And we think that's offensive and unacceptable. And so we have, after trying to resolve the issue without litigation, we have filed suit against Greyhound. I want to explore that resolving the issue without litigation because we try to ask the questions that a lot of people want asked on this podcast. And one of the observations you hear sometimes, perhaps from people on the periphery who don't monitor the email lists or social media closely until the lawsuit causes an explosion of publicity, is that the National Federation of the Blind, in their view, tends to sue first and ask questions later. Is that a fair criticism? Are you confident that you've done everything you could to try and resolve this issue before pushing the lawsuit button? I I am, Jonathan. Uh, While I don't necessarily, because I'm obviously not on the legal team and I, I can't cite every chapter in verse uh, about back and forth uh, to Greyhound uh, to you. I can say that we've been talking about this issue for a while. As a matter of fact, it was talked about uh, at our last convention in 2016. There may have been a resolution uh, passed about it. And the other observation that I would make when people talk about us or really anybody, because this is an accusation that's made of of a a lot of disability organizations and is being made in the United States about the disability community in general, unfortunately, right now, is that we would, by a huge degree, prefer not to file litigation. Litigation is expensive for everybody involved. It's time-consuming. It is not by any means the quickest or most effective way to resolve an issue. We would much rather communicate with Greyhound and say, gosh, or anybody else and say, gosh, you've got some accessibility problems. Let's work together to solve them. And they would say, why, yes, please help us resolve these issues because perhaps we don't quite have the expertise that you might have in resolving them. And then we would work together and it would all work out. And we have, in fact, relationships with Uh, several companies that are going that way. Uh, I mean, we we have a great relationship right now with Expedia, for example, which is another travel company. It's It's a travel booking company. It doesn't run its own transportation, but it's a it's a travel booking uh, platform. And we did not sue Expedia and they are working with us to resolve accessibility issues. So Uh, We much prefer that. Uh, However, when we sue, you can pretty much bet that it did not turn out that way and that the company either did not respond to the request that we've made to discuss the issue or they responded in a way that was not useful. For example, by telling us that accessibility is not a priority to them, they will get to it sometime in the future at a time of their choosing. We are a small market segment, and therefore it's not cost-effective for them to worry about us all that much. So that's the general kind of thing that we run into when we have decided to file suit. Now I would have to ask our I would have to ask our counsel specifically about what exactly happened. Uh, but I 
knowing the organization as I do, I'm pretty sure that I'm very sure, as a matter of fact, that this was not jumped into uh, precipitously. Yeah, I understand that when you get to the front line and you call the call center and you say, I'm a blind person, I can't use your website, can you waive the convenience fee? And if the call center person isn't empowered to do that and they do often work within very narrow parameters and according to a script that they have to work within, I sort of get that. But the idea that this that this has been escalated and somebody somewhere at a senior level has said pretty much, no, uh, our website may be inaccessible, but we're still going to charge you anyway. That seems like an extraordinarily, almost a confrontational response. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, our guys have definitely felt that way, and and there have been uh, you know uh, yeah the other option that people have is going to the ticket counter, of course, at a Greyhound bus station and buying a ticket. But I uh, have heard one story, and I don't want to use the gentleman's name because he hasn't given us permission to. But I heard one story where the the fellow got into a very confrontational situation with the person at the ticket counter because he had in fact made his reservation over the phone and paid the convenience fee and that but then not been able to print his ticket and was actually told that Greyhound would not print an existing ticket at the ticket counter and had to fight about that so what we're getting, and I should say, despite the songs about it that you've heard, um, Greyhound doesn't have the best reputation in America. It is, it yeah, is. Not, I know, I know uh, that now. <laughs> Having written yeah, a few. it is not. A, I'm not. I'm not going to shy away from saying this. Okay, it is not a property that anyone would describe as beloved. Uh, it's kind of something you do if you have to. And really, it seems like Greyhound just isn't very customer service focused, and in particular, isn't at all customer service focused in respect of uh, treating blind people equitably. And as you say, the frontline customer service representative may not be all that empowered, but blind individuals that have dealt with this have asked to speak to supervisors and have escalated and still not gotten a satisfactory result. And the other thing about that is, you know, Greyhound could could say, well, okay, but when somebody's on the phone talking to us, how do we really know that they're a blind person? Well, okay, fair enough. So the simplest solution to that problem is that you have a web platform that everybody can use and, and an app that everybody can use and where it doesn't matter if they're blind or not or not. And then you don't have to worry about determining whether somebody has a legitimate claim to having the convenience fee waived. Yeah, we have a situation in New Zealand, and obviously New Zealand is on a much, much smaller scale, and we have a single major blindness agency. But uh, in New Zealand runs a pretty accessible website, but it's on the challenging end of the spectrum, if you know what I'm saying. It's not, it couldn't be classed as inaccessible, but it could be classed as one of those sites where you've maybe got to have a little bit of screen reader savvy to get it done. And um, about three months ago, in the middle of the night, I had to book a flight because my father had died and I just wasn't mentally up to using the website. Sure. It just I'm wasn't processing it. That, by the way. <laughs> and um, I was able to call the airline who owned a, operated a 24-7 call center 
And uh, everybody who is a client of the Blindness Agency here in New Zealand gets a unique identifier. And I don't think they bother to match it, but it's a kind of a question that would stop somebody who was trying to be fraudulent in their tracks. And they just say, what is your client number? And you quote it and they waive the convenience fee. And boy, I was grateful then that I could just get my flight booked <laughs> uh, at the time. So, right. I mean, there, there are probably ways around that, um, around the place, even if there was some sort of application process. But as you say, the bottom line should be that the website is accessible. You mentioned some of these aggregation services like Expedia. And if I'm remembering correctly, uh, you've also had some useful interaction with Travelocity and some of those other sites. Are they able to book Greyhound tickets, or does Greyhound not uh, subscribe to those aggregation services? I'm not aware that that Greyhound does subscribe to those aggregation services. And when I've looked at those, at, uh, I've used Expedia and Travelocity. And booking a a bus trip uh, does not, uh, to my memory, there is not an option. And Greyhound is, I mean, in terms of a nationwide bus company, uh, Greyhound is what we have. I mean, there used to be two uh, really big ones, Greyhound and Trailways, and and they merged. And so, you know, Greyhound is is pretty much the option unless you're going to do to do the chartered bus or the chartered coach route, as you guys would say, this is what you're going to deal with if you're if you're talking about mass bus transit and you're not dealing with a local transit system. So there's not a really good workaround with Greyhound. I want to talk to another point that you raised too, if you don't mind. We do sometimes hear when we file litigation like this, and of course the the defendants, if they want to fight the litigation, they always look for people who will say this, you know, gosh, maybe our site's not perfect, but maybe this site's not perfect, but I was able to use it. Uh, you just have to have a little bit of screen reader savvy. Well, you know, I understand that. And certainly there are different versions of screen readers. There are different browsers. There are all kinds of factors that can play into how well uh, you can use a, a website or an app. But the two things I would point out is there are guidelines out there. Uh, of course, there's the web content accessibility guidelines and others. And the other piece is that really when we talk about accessibility in the National Federation of the Blind, and maybe not everybody thinks this is reasonable, but we do, we talk about the concept that a blind person should be able to do a task such as booking a trip with substantially equivalent ease of use. And that is also language that the Justice Department has used here in the United States. In other words, it should be maybe not exactly as easy as it would be for a sighted person to do it, but pretty close. And we actually had a defendant say uh, to us, and I'm not going to name them because we actually have a pretty good relationship with them now. One, one thing that we do in the Federation is we're able to develop good relationships, sometimes even after uh, going through litigation or, or as a result of that process. We, they actually told us, well, you know, we've talked to blind people about this issue, about your allegations. And we were told that if you fiddle with the website for an hour or so, you can get the task done. 
And we're like, okay, but really, should that be the standard? I mean, nobody else has to monkey with it for that length of time to get that particular uh, task done or to buy, you know, to make their purchase or whatever. Why is the is it okay for blind people to have a different standard of customer service, to have to have more technical know-how to do something than anybody else would have to? Mm, and as somebody who does a lot of training, I have a lot of sympathy with what you're saying because I, I, I see people who genuinely struggle with things that I find easy. And it's not that these people are are lacking in IQ. It's just that some people find this technology more intuitive than others. It doesn't make them stupid. It's just the reality of it. Now, at the same time, though, are you advocating when people get allocated assistive technology? I think the reality is that the learning curve to become proficient is a lot more steep than, say, a sighted person grabbing, say, an iPhone and intuitively knowing what to do with this thing because it's such a visual interface or even Windows is a graphical interface. Um, It's got to be approached from both sides, doesn't it? You've got to fight for blind people to receive appropriate training when they get this stuff so they are equipped to use websites as best as they can. Absolutely. Uh, When we absolutely believe in that. We have never questioned the assumption that a blind person or the uh, the, or the basic uh, strategy of a blind person getting training in technology so that they can approach these things. And sometimes it can be hard to find that balance and say, okay, is this really an issue where it's difficult enough uh, even to an experienced screen reader user for it to be uh, problematic you know, or is this uh, fall into the category of, okay, people, these are skills that people should have. And it's a balance because as an organization, at, on the one hand, we're advocating for blind people to get training and to get the technology they need. Uh, and on the other hand, we're, we have to take the blind population where it is. And so finding that balance can sometimes be a little bit difficult, but no question, you know, and we've always said it's reasonable to expect that a blind person is is using technology that enables him or her, at least theoretically, to use the website or the app and has some knowledge of how to use that technology. We just don't think it's reasonable to expect everybody to be a superpower user in order to access a service. There's There needs to be a meeting halfway. Otherwise, you know, and, and again, this is something that we've heard from technology companies. You know, well, it's the, it's the screen reader manufacturer's job to script for this stuff and, and make it so that you guys can use it. Why is this our responsibility? You know, if we go too far down the road of saying, gosh, blind people just need to, to school up, then we're getting into the realm of essentially saying we're, we're not going to hold people accountable. There's a, a meeting halfway that needs to happen. What sort of legal precedent now exists for this case law? Because I know there was some debate for a long time about whether the ADA would apply to websites. And there was some reluctance for a while, sort of in the early days of the web, which was also the somewhat early days of the ADA, to push that button. I think people were looking for a really strong case because if there was case law established that the ADA did not apply to the web, 
where we're going to have all sorts of long-term problems. So do you have legal precedents and case law to draw from in this instance? Absolutely. There is still some division within the legal community or within the courts, I should say, about what the ADA applies to. And that division at this point mostly has to do with whether what you're dealing with is purely an online entity. And of course, nothing's truly purely an online entity, uh, or some things are, but they, you know, The example I was going to use, for example, is Amazon. Well, Amazon, of course, has to have physical distribution centers and stuff, but it's and now it's open brick and mortar stores. So it's even less of a of a relevant example than it used to be. But it is basically an online only presence. It's not something where you expect to be able to physically interact with it in the way that you would with a brick and mortar grocery store or brick and mortar bookstore. And so there is a question, well, does the ADA apply to those? Now, our argument is and has always been, well, some of those websites uh, and apps and online presences do the same things that brick-and-mortar public accommodations do. Public accommodations is the legal term in the Americans with Disabilities Act for this type of thing. And so why should they be treated treated differently? But some courts have disagreed with that. Some of our uh, our district courts in the United States, because that's how our system is set up. What has generally been agreed on, however, is that if you are using a site or some kind of online mechanism to access something that does have a physical presence, then it it probably needs to be accessible if that nexus exists. And of course, you can definitely make that argument with Greyhound. What Greyhound is doing is using a website to allow you to book a right to sit on its physical bus and be transported from one place to another. And of course, you, you're going to do that by going to a bus station that Greyhound has and uh, getting on that bus. So I would say that there's definitely a physical nexus. That's one, that's one argument that we have. Another thing is that we have also sued under California state law. You know, of course, in a federal system like the United States, there are federal laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act, and there are state laws. And state laws uh, are permitted by our Constitution to be stronger than federal laws with respect to rights and privileges that citizens have. And uh, California, for example, and, and some other states has a very robust civil rights law that actually says it doesn't matter whether a business is, business is physical or virtual. If it's a business and it is not accessible to people with disabilities, then it is violating the law. So eventually there may be a case that looks at a service like, and, and the ones that spring to mind would be Spotify or Pandora, one of those outfits that has no physical presence at all. I was going to say Netflix, but of course they still send out physical DVDs, although they they don't have any stores. But one of those things is eventually right. going to end up at the Supreme Court, isn't it? And there'll be a decision on this uh, ultimately one way or the other. 
Yeah, to be honest, I think I think people are trying not to. Uh, there's still some caution uh, in the in the disability community, particularly about getting things to the Supreme Court, because once you once the Supreme Court has ruled, that's the law. And uh, so people are being, uh, we are very cautious, in fact, about the cases that we take because you don't want to uh, set the wrong precedent and then have the chance that that precedent is going to become permanent. Yeah. Um, and once Justice Kennedy retires, that window is well and truly closed, I would suggest. Right. Well, I don't want to get into the political thing <laughs> of, uh, of particular justices, but it's just, I mean, this isn't, by the way, you know, and the interesting thing is this isn't a, a partisan issue in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I, I seem to recall reading that a, 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 a jurist who has a judge on one of our federal courts who has a reputation as being quote unquote conservative uh, for whatever that label is worth actually does agree that uh, online only public accommodations would be covered by the ADA. There are other more liberal judges who have taken the position that there that there needs to be a physical nexus. So it may not be purely a partisan issue, but what you do run into is, of course, there's the question of textual originalism. And one of the arguments that is made is, well, the, the ADA doesn't mention the Internet, so it can't be expected to apply to it. It's not reasonable. The face of the law of the statute doesn't tell you that it applies to the Internet. We don't agree with that argument, uh, and other courts have not agreed with it. They have said things like, well, by that logic, the Fourth Amendment would not apply to wiretapping somebody's telephone. Right. The Fourth Amendment is the amendment of our Constitution that says that you can't be unreasonably searched or your possession seized without due process of law and without probable cause. And that, and that includes, that has been construed to include technical matters like tapping somebody's telephone or even I believe the Supreme Court recently said you can't just track the GPS on somebody's iPhone when they are a suspect without a warrant because that is getting too much into their personal space and violating the spirit, if not the letter, of the Fourth Amendment. But you, you can definitely make the argument, and I think this is why there continues to be caution, because there are uh, judges who style themselves textual originalists, that you know the ADA was passed in 1990, and at that time the Internet was not... It, it existed, but it was not something that the general public widely used yet. So there are those who contend if the ADA is to apply to the Internet, then Congress actually needs to change the law, which doesn't seem likely in this political yeah, environment, indeed. I have yeah. to say. And I'm not being partisan in saying that. It's just because just that we're not in a place where changing a big civil rights law and implementing more regulations is likely to happen. And indeed, there's some suggestion it could be scaled back, and that's probably another another topic we should talk about at another time. But of course, there is a bit of activism Absolutely. going on about that. But let's talk about next steps in the context of this particular lawsuit. What happens from this point then? Well, uh, a couple of things. So as your listeners are listening to me, if they have had an experience 
uh, with Greyhound, where they have not been able to use the website or app and or have been charged a convenience fee for not using the website or app, uh, they should let us know. The lead attorney on this case is a gentleman named Timothy Elder, and his website is trelegal.com. You can get in touch with him. And the reason I solicit like that is because we are asking for it to be a class action, which means that we and the individual plaintiffs are asking, in effect, to be able to represent uh, a whole class of blind people who may have had this experience. And if the court approves that, of course, we, we need to know how many people have potentially had this experience and, and been affected. We need to get an idea of, of the scope of the problem. We know that it is a problem, but we need to know more about how many people it's affected. So we, we're waiting for class action certification. Of course, Greyhound gets the opportunity to respond to the allegations that we've, we've made, and we'll see what they have to say. And then the way litigation works is that uh, you go through a process called discovery, which is where each side gathers evidence in preparation for a trial. But of course, during that process, negotiation can also go on between the two sides. The two sides, lawyers can discuss, okay, is there a way that we can resolve this problem without continuing this expensive and extensive litigation process. We'll go through the motions as the court directs and at the same time hopefully reach a productive dialogue with Greyhound so that it ultimately doesn't need to become a a protracted piece of litigation. But we'll just have to see what happens. But potentially it could take years? It could. It could. If it goes all the way to trial, it could take several years. Uh, if it goes to trial and either side gets a decision that they uh, do not feel accurately reflects the, the law uh, or the facts, then there can be appeals. So any litigation, you've got the potential to take quite a while. And of course, our, our courts are very uh, backlogged, and there's all kinds of reasons that a particular lawsuit doesn't move very quickly. Appreciate your time as always. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having us, Jonathan. I was curious about this, so I logged into the US iOS App Store and downloaded the mobile app. It is a completely unusable experience if what you want to do is to book a fare with Greyhound. There's a series of very nicely labeled tabs at the bottom of the screen. When you choose the tab to book a fare, you find a screen that maybe as a graphical image of some kind because there is no way to navigate the controls and book a fare to enter anything at all, your destination, where you want to go, any of that information. The whole thing is completely inaccessible and that's unacceptable in an era where blind people are increasingly using mobile devices just like the rest of the world to get things done. The website's a little bit more nuanced and it's clear that some work has been done by Greyhound to think about accessibility. It's sensitive to the fact that a screen reader is running and actually gives you screen reader specific prompts, such as prompting you to press enter to accept a choice and a whole bunch of other very specific screen reader prompts. The issue appears to be the extensive use of menus throughout 
the booking process, which can cause some issues with some configurations. And so the issue could possibly be resolved with use of combo boxes and radio buttons and standard options like this. But certainly in the case of the mobile app, there are some very serious issues. And for many people using the website, it's obviously a very difficult experience. Until these issues are resolved, you would think that Greyhound would do the right thing and waive any courtesy fee when people call. We tried to bring you both sides of every story on the blind side, and to that end, we contacted Greyhound Media Relations, notifying them that we were going to be running this story and inviting them to come on the podcast and comment. We haven't had any reply at this point, but if we do, we'll revisit the story and certainly speak with someone from Greyhound. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email the blind side at mosin.org. It is remarkable to think how far we've come since GPS was made more accurate to consumers back in 2000. I remember being involved at some level with some of the original BrailleNote GPS projects and seeing the excitement when blind people could suddenly get their cab driver or even a bus full of concerned passengers with a trainee bus driver out of a bind. And now, of course, a lot of this GPS technology is on our smartphones and we have it in our pocket. Somebody who has taken a snapshot of the state of GPS technology on iOS today is Judy Dixon. She's written another book. And this one is called Go Where You Want to Go. It's published by National Braille Press. It's good to have you back, Judy, even though I have to say you have upset the grammarian in me with your title, and I thought you were a bit of a grammarian yourself. Well, I took a little liberties from song lyrics. Thank you, John. Taking poetic license. Mm. Yes. (laughs) Tell me about this book and... What inspired it? You cover a lot of the the apps that we would expect you to cover, but you've also uncovered some real gems in this book. That's my goal. When I write any of these books, one goal I have is I want to give the most well-informed person something they didn't know. And it might not be a great deal that they didn't know, but there's got to be something because a lot of us who work very hard to stay up to date in certain areas are pretty well informed. But if if you spend a few months digging into a particular topic, you will find things that uh, you actually didn't already know. Without spoiling the book too much, because I want people to buy the book, but I was particularly impressed with your review of an app called Via Opta Nav, which I had never heard of. And I'm really curious about its genesis, really, because it looks like it's a pharmaceutical company from Switzerland, I think, right? Yes, it is a pharmaceutical company yeah. from Switzerland. Who have put these, really, these apps together. <laughs> it's really fun. And I, uh, I have an Apple Watch, so I used it when they had an Apple Watch version of the app. Well, the Apple Watch version is now broken unfortunately. And I'm really hoping they update the app because the Apple Watch version worked really well. And that's what intrigued me about Via OptinApp. It's a fairly straightforward, fairly simple app, but it's a good example of an app that has a feature that none of the other full-featured apps have. And that is when you create a route with the app and you're getting ready to start following the route, Sometimes a route will say, you know, proceed to Elm Street, 
well, where the heck is Elm Street? Mm. And what you can do with via Optinav is just lay your phone flat in your hand and rotate it, and it will vibrate in the direction that you're meant to go when you first start. That is so critical because sometimes it takes a while for the root processing to catch up with you and let you know that you're heading in the wrong direction. That's a (laughs) huge time saver. Yes. You seem to quite like the Around Me app, right? That's quite a simple app to navigate and it just serves a purpose very well, just letting you know in quite broad categories what's around and very easy to set it to any location, not just the one that you're currently at. That's one of the things I like about it is if you're thinking about or you know you're going to be at a convention or somewhere and you you wonder, well, what's around? I wonder, I want to start thinking about places I might like to go. It's very easy to set it for somewhere else. And in some of the other apps, that, that can be quite a lot more complicated to do. But in Around Me, I I think we tend to need these GPS apps at times when it's not always convenient to just sit down and and fiddle with your phone and struggle with finding things. We need to be able to do things quickly. And that's one of the things I like about Around Me. It's quite straightforward. So when you are thinking about going on vacation or perhaps heading off on business to a city that you're not terribly familiar with, what would be your normal plan for getting acquainted you'd work first with the around me app i take it then and just take a look at where you might be able to eat that kind of thing i would look at around me and unfortunately none of the apps right now uh, you can do it a little bit with nearby explorer but none of them really in if you may recall the old um sendero maps uh which we still have i still have a nice pc version of Mm. it and you could literally walk around. I mean, you just, you know, up arrow, you're going north and left. You you could go left and right and forward and back. And it would tell you every time you arrived at an intersection and what the shape of the intersection was. And you could just do this virtual. Now, Nearby Explorer does have a virtual walking around, but it doesn't work quite in the same way. But that's the only one that even comes close. You can do it with Nearby Explorer. It's just a little bit more complicated. There's also a similar app to Around Me that you cover in the book called Where To, and that gets a bit more granular, doesn't it? So some people may it prefer does. the granularity of it. And it is great. It's a nice app, and and it is it is more granular, and uh, it's it's things aren't quite so categorized, but it's but it's a it's a very nice app. And you know, no one size never fits all, and and uh, it's it's an app that that's really valuable as well. I tend to use Apple Maps a lot because of its Siri integration, because you can say, where am I? And and one of my favorite parts of the book is I pose some scenarios that that might be typical of of when you might be needing your, your GPS app. Things like you're on the bus and the driver says, whoops, okay, here's your stop. And you say, oh, gosh, really, already? Okay, fine. And in the book, I say, in a fit of compliance, you get off. <laughs> and and uh, so you're standing there, and you take out your phone, and you say to Siri, where am I? And you find out you are not at all where you wanted to get off the bus. So what do you do? So I, I go through these kinds of scenarios, 
And I found over and over we were we were whipping out the same apps, <laughs> Blind Square, Nearby Explorer. But with Apple Maps, you could say, take me home. And one of the cool things about Apple Maps is you can say, I want to walk home. And if your Apple Maps is set to default to driving, it will give you walking directions. You can say, I want to drive to the grocery store. And if your Apple Maps, you know, whatever the default is, it will undefault and give you whatever you're asking for. So that makes it really a slick way to get whatever you want. One of the things I've noticed when using GPS technology in a taxi, for example, or maybe an Uber, although Uber, I don't tend to feel the need to use it so much because the Uber app that they give to drivers seems to have very good GPS navigation. Mm. And I tend to find that we get lost a lot less in an Uber. But when in a cab, I've noticed that sometimes drivers get a little bit sensitive if they feel like you're undermining them by (laughs) tracking the GPS. And so sometimes I don't want to use Siri. Sometimes I deliberately do actually to let them know that I don't have confidence in what they're doing at this particular time. But one of the things that I think is going to be particularly good about iOS 11 is that you'll be able to enable a feature where you can type to Siri. So if you you can use your Braille screen input or a Braille display or a little keyboard or whatever and quickly type in your instruction that you would normally speak to Siri and no one (laughs) need know that you're doing it. I think that's great. I'm looking forward to that as well because I use headphones with my app. And I think, you know, if you just say, where am I? Hopefully most cab drivers won't realize what you're actually doing. <laughs> What's your take on Blind Square, which is quite a fully featured app, isn't it? And, and compared with some of the apps that offer similar features, it's actually at a pretty reasonable price point. It is. Um, Blind Square is very good if you just want to know where you are and it integrates well with other apps it it can't do turn by turn directions itself and that's a kind of major limitation they've just incorporated and unfortunately there's two major changes to these gps apps that have helped since the end of april when i last had hands on this book which is the blind square has incorporated an app called What three words? And what three words is very interesting. It has divided the world up into uh, five-meter sections and has assigned random words. And they're really quite random. I mean, it's like uh, lair and mermaid and (laughs) population, you know. (laughs) And I think that was one I saw the other day. And, And yet, if you want to tell somebody where you are and they enter those words, it will take them to that 15 foot square where you are. And it's really quite a cool app. It it, it approaches the whole notion of, because it doesn't use longitude and latitude, it kind of makes up its own little mini longitude and latitude and assigns random words. In populated areas, the words are more uh, smaller words and, and more well-known words, but in, in rural areas, they're very strange words. Let's talk about the way the book is structured then. What can people expect if they purchase this book in terms of exploring the content? So there's four major areas. The first part of the book is introduction. And I I realize that a lot of people don't live and breathe and eat this stuff daily. So maybe they needed a little background on what the heck is GPS and how did we get it and how has it evolved? And and at the very end of the book, there's 
a section on what can we expect, although most of that is secret, so we couldn't can't find out too much about what we can expect, except that it's only going to get better. But I talk about map data, because I think people need to understand when they're using these different apps, where is the map data coming from, and which map data will work best for them. And that varies from place to place. And internet connection, when would you need one, when would you not, and how do you know? And then iPhone battery life, which is what everybody talks about with GPS. Yes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to eat up your iPhone battery. So what can you do about that? And then a few words on travel safety. Uh, you know, don't walk around with headphones on. And, and I talk about uh, bone conduction headphones, which a lot of people like to use or other ways that you might be able to hear your phone and actually hear the world at the same time. And using Siri. Some interesting things that you can do with Siri. And this was fun. This was a fun part of the book because I, I learned a lot here. You can do a lot more than just where am I or or take me to my brother's house. You can anytime you're on a route, you can ask her where the next turn is, or you can actually even do side trips on routes, which I had no idea you could do that. And then there comes the section I was talking about with the various scenarios, the deciding which app to use. And then a little bit just about the book. The GPS apps themselves are divided into three chapters. Chapter one is just where am I? And this is the basic, I even put compass in here. And then an app called Where Am I At? Which will literally just tell, give you your longitude, your latitude, your city and state, or your something, your city and country or something. But where am I? Seeing Assistant has a number of relevant apps. And this one's Seeing Assistant Alarm GPS Light. And uh, it will tell you where you are. You can set alarms. So if you're walking around and you want to know when you get to a certain place, it will tell you or when you're getting near home or whatever you set. It, it does kind of, kind of it's simple, but it does kind of cool things. And then Ariadne GPS, which does a lot more than tell you where you are, but it does tell you where you are and very nicely. And you can do a lot of other things with it that that's kind of interesting. You can share points of interest and share places that you set yourself, share routes with other people and that sort of thing. And then chapter two is what's around. And that's where we get into um, some really interesting apps here. Uh, one called Over There, which was developed under the auspices of Smith Kettlewell and Josh Mealy. And this is a really, really cool app. It has a very interesting interface because you can just hold it flat and, and circle your phone and it, as it points at things. It's, it's kind of the metaphor of, of actually reading signs. And then anytime you want to know more about one that it just read, you just put your phone vertically and it will tell you about it. And you can mm. set them yourself. So you can actually set, you know, your own front door, and and uh, it's quite cool. Do you know if that is a thirty-two bit app? I wouldn't have thought so. Okay, yeah, because currently now, when you search for an app, if it's thirty-two bit, it doesn't come up in the search results anymore. Apple have turned that on in preparation for iOS eleven. The reason why I ask is that I searched for over there because that was another one that I hadn't come across before. And it doesn't come up in the New Zealand app store, so it could be that some of uh, these apps are not international in their in their scope. But yes. I remember and those I talking signs, you know, back in the, oh, a long time ago, and you'd go to the conventions and they'd have these talking signs all set up, but there was so much <laughs> electromagnetic interference from all the technology in the exhibit hall, <laughs> you know, sometimes it would play. That's a really cool concept that they've taken talking signs into the iPhone that way, really cool. Yes. It's very cool. 
And I do apologize to everyone outside the U.S. because I only had access to the U.S. App Store and I did not research what was available outside the U.S. And I did think about it quite often, but I had no way to do it. Mm. Uh, so so uh, <laughs> uh, some of these may, may not be. I think most of um, them are, though. Most of them are uh, international in their scope. So that's that's good. I mean, yeah. Well, I know Blind Square and, and Nearby Explorer because I use them myself in New Zealand, so I know at least you have them there. Yeah, Nearby but, Explorer works in New Zealand, but at the moment they haven't put it in the New Zealand app store. I believe that may be imminent, but it's not here at the moment. It does work, though. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. And then Autour is an interesting app. This is an app from McGill University, and it's a it's a bunch of students. Although they say they're gonna they're gonna keep developing it, but it's an another another kind of look around what's around, um, and it and it has some very very interesting interfaces. It's it's interfaces are really fun to look at in all these apps because this is an area where the developers I think have gotten extremely clever with how to make their interfaces slick and and quickly usable it's a fundamental point of difference isn't it i mean they all do basically the same variation of things um that's the one that's using stereo isn't it so you yeah that's a very cool we talked about that on the blind side actually with the with the lecturer who was looking after the the project and uh, Mm. it's a it's a great concept i think Mm, it is and it works well yeah uh it, it my only um concern about it is it has a very very narrow radius um, you, you don't look around very far. And then we have Around Me and Where To, that's in, in this chapter, and then Blind Square, of course. And Blind Square is a full-featured, um, really fun, co- complex app. When you really dig into it, you find little gems that you might not have even known were there. And then Chapter 3 is Creating and Following Roots. And this is where we get into Via OptiNav, which is a simple app, but it does roots. It does them quite well. Nearby Explorer, of course, which is the the uh, probably in the lead for the Kentucky Derby of GPS apps at the moment. You were quite glowing about that, I noticed. Yes. I, yeah. Well, yeah, I really, I do, I do like it. I think it's really quite full featured and 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 some clever interface features. And and uh, Larry Scootcon keeps saying it's only going to get better. So we have, I think, we have a lot to look for. Some there's kind of a development cycle in in some of these apps, and and we're. We're still near the beginning of this app's development cycle, so we have a lot to look forward to. And then Seeing Eye GPS, which has just had an update uh, in the last couple of days, and it can now do uh, off-route navigation and, and so forth. And so that was not something I covered because it didn't do it when I covered it. That's why in the book I do tell you what version of the app I used um, when I talk about the app. And then we have uh, Apple Maps, which as of iOS 10 has a whole new interface, which I'm not entirely pleased with. I find it a lot more complicated. It's a bit fiddly, isn't it? But I thought that you gave a really good explanation i remember when i was beta testing ios 10 and i was trying to document the the new apple maps interface for ios 10 without the eye <laughs> and in the end i actually got my daughter heidi in to say actually what what is visually going on on the screen because it wasn't immediately apparent to me what the visuals were here but the way you've described it in terms of the way the whole card interface works and sort of sliding the card around um, is very good. So if people are bamboozled by the new Apple Maps, it might be worth getting the book just for that alone, actually. 
I really worked hard on that section. I actually yeah. read that section of your book and thought, hmm, well, let's see, I need to go further than this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it, it, is, it is quite confusing, but it, you, you can make sense of it if you just wrap your head around it. Yes, yeah. And so it was quite fun. And then Google Maps, which is undergoing some real changes as well. Google Maps is a pretty accessible, pretty neat, usable app, but they've um, discontinued their watch app. And it, it's the only app that I found that kept giving me routes that actually had paths and uh, things that weren't streets on them. And I thought that was very nice. It was, you know, and, and quite well described. I was quite surprised when I read your piece on Google Maps, because it was almost like you, you had con accessibility concerns. And I guess I haven't really found that myself. I also find sometimes that Apple Maps will still get a bit confused sometimes with, with routing in certain places, whereas Google Maps tends to be a bit more straightforward. And you can, of course, there's a voice search button. I don't know whether this has made it and, and it wouldn't have made it into your book anyway, even if it has. But with the Google, the, the main Google search app, they just implemented the magic tap. So you can now do a two finger double tap and do a voice search um, pretty much anywhere in the app. And I'm wondering whether that's now also moved on to, um, to the Maps app, because that would be very handy to do a, a voice search that way. And Google Maps is a, is a very nice app. And it is, I, d I did found it quite accessible with some some fairly minor accessibility issues but but I I do like it and I think it's a useful app it's it keeps changing like so many things mm. but but, uh, but Siri it sounds like for you that the, the integration that Apple Maps has with Siri and of course they've been careful not to open Siri up to navigation apps at this point that's the clincher for you just the fact that it's so easy to to set up a route and make instructions that way it's what I do I, I just find it so easy yeah then the fourth chapter which is navigating without streets and this is for things like college campuses and conference centers and so forth I did repeat some of the other apps because with specific focus on how you can navigate without streets in those apps, but also added a few additional ones, such as My Way Light from Poland, so Seeing Assistant Move from Poland, and then Here, and Here, which is H-E-A-R-E, -E, is such an interesting app, and I, it is on the list of apps that may not make it to oh, iOS dear, 11 yes. unless, yeah. unless the developers do something about it. And yet I included it here mostly because the way it works and the ideas behind how it works are so interesting. Even if that app doesn't survive, maybe somebody will pick up an idea from this. But you create the roots outside the app. You actually can do it with a web browser. And a sighted person just can just click on a map. But they've also made an interface so that blind people can do it. So you can go out and walk around and use an app like Where Am I At? So to find out your exact longitude and latitude. And then you can put in these points and then it will create the route for you. So let's say a disabled student service office wanted to give students maps of the campus with all the buildings indicated, but wanted to give them to them the first day. They could create a very, very complicated map that had all kinds of points on it and so forth. And they could do it with a web browser. And then the 
the day the students hit the college campus, they've got a tool to use. So they can import all of that data, all of that work? That... It's, it's all imported. It's, yeah. You just go to the country and, and your map is there. That's another one I hadn't heard of. And when I read your description of it, I was really intrigued. And, and let's hope, it sounds like you also put it in as a kind of a lobbying tool because you're hoping I, that other people can see its potential <laughs> and write to the author before the big firework goes off and, um, and it I, becomes unusable. I hope people do that because I think it's one that's well worth preserving yeah. or getting the ideas out to others who are developing apps. Mm-hmm. You talked about the future of GPS in your final section there. I wonder if you've come across any suggestion that the reverse may actually happen, that rather than GPS getting more accurate, every so often I read concerns or fears, and I have no idea if they're groundless or not, that what we got in 2000 could be reverted and that for security reasons, the United States government could make GPS less accurate again. I've read that too, but I've also read that because GPS is so integrated into so many businesses and the infrastructure of the United States and the rest of the world, that if they did that, commercial activity in this country would be so severely impacted that it would just be a completely unreasonable thing to do. So it sounds like it's just kind of the general fear mongering that goes on. And I doubt there's much reality to it. Indoor navigation is going to be the next big thing, isn't it? And we know that Blind Square has done some great work in this regard. We are so fortunate here in Wellington, New Zealand's capital, to have what we have and walk around the central business district and go into stores and get the most amazing indoor navigation in in some of those stores now, thanks to the Blind Square beacons. Uh, But there's a bit of work going on with this, and I think Apple is doing some, Google is doing some, and let's just hope that there's some sort of international standard for indoor navigation that emerges that everybody can adhere to. Sendero is doing, uh, just got a big grant to work on indoor navigation. And it's interesting, when I first outlined this book, I had a chapter on indoor navigation, but yet I think it's still way too soon. Beacons are not all that directional, and um, they're having difficulty still with them going through walls and things like that. So I think it's got a fair ways to go before it really gets to the point where it's really usable in, in indoor navigation with small spaces like rooms. Very informative book, Go Where You Want to Go. Tell us how people can obtain it in the formats in which it's available. It's from National Braille Press. And it is in hard copy Braille, BRF file, Word, and Daisy text. And do you have a price on that book? They're $12. And again, I want to make it clear that I donated this book to National Braille Press and they don't, they didn't pay me for doing it. And all the money that they will get from selling it, they keep. It's a great contribution to to the resources to help people get the most of their devices. And I love it when I find out about a few little nuggets like this, a few apps I didn't know about because I'm I'm pretty pretty connected. So you've done well. (laughs) And I and I love it if I can uh, tell you something that you didn't already know. (laughs) All right. Hey, it's always good to talk with you, Judy. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I hope people go out and pick up this book. It's a great read. 
Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.